welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Go with the home team at favorites.com. Bart Gregory and Charlie Winfield. Week one of the SEC is now behind us. Bulldogs have gone on the road and beaten LSU two out of three this past weekend. They beat North Alabama in a Wednesday night affair. And Charlie Winfield, I guess before we talk baseball, how about that dagger from D.J. Stewart last night to put Mississippi State in the semifinals of the NIT? Boy, we tried to mess that one up, didn't we? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I thought we don't talk about basketball. We don't here. talk about basketball unless something positive happens. Okay. Well, last... that's a fair that's a fair qualification. Something positive did happen. You think about all the things that had to lead into that working for Mississippi State. Oh my goodness. By the way, with about twenty seconds to go, what was it? You attack the rim, you think boy, somebody's gotta put that one in, right? Stewart's going on the attack. How does it not go follow. in? You can't get the follow. And then Something you don't see in the women's game, the one-and-one. One. They missed the shot to get the rebound. And if Stewart – I thought they made a good point on the broadcast. If Stewart misses that shot, what are you talking about? We only needed a two. Yeah. But he drained it. And it looked good from the hand. I mean, it looked good all the way. And, you know, wasn't entirely sure he wasn't fouled shooting. Yeah. Hey, it's better than taking a two when you need a three. No, that's absolutely <laughs> right. Hey, you remember that happened under Stansbury one time with Robert Jackson? He took a two. We needed a three. And Hank Flick says, Robert Jackson, <laughs> even though we lost by one, Stansberry went nuts. It made him so mad. Okay. <laughs> hey, looking back at this past weekend, winning two of three down in Baton Rouge, what was your takeaway from, from winning those your first two games? We talked about this a little bit on Sunday Coffee, about the wind blowing in, and that kind of played in our favor a little bit. The Sunday game, we kind of came out of the gate and gave them a couple runs. I'm trying without to f- a hit. Yeah, without a hit. I'm trying to figure out how good LSU is. I'm trying to figure out, you know, if their offense is not very good, especially when the wind blowing in, or is our pitching just that good? Well, who are you looking for today? Are you looking for half full or half empty, Charlie? I'm just looking at fifty percent capacity. Fifty capacity. Yeah. Well, let's do it this way. Uh, what do we say? What we like? What we don't like? All right. What I liked. What I like about this team, other than the pitching is I like how this team does not strike out. You don't have many wasted at-bats, and I hate to say wasted at-bats, but that's kind of what a strikeout is, right? So we have what 122 strikeouts, 134 either walks or hit batsmen. So you've got the positive ratio working with walks and hit batsmen versus strikeouts. All right, so I, I see where you're going, but let, let me give you the other side. Let me counterbalance. Isn't a weak ground ball to second base nearly as bad now that's the glass half empty charlie right there no i'm just i'm trying to provide balance it all evens out right so you can say look we don't strike out very much we put it in play but if you go back to last weekend we only marginally put it in play about 14 15 times and i'm not talking about hard ground balls we rolled over on a lot and you go and you look at our numbers right now if you look at the fly ball to ground ball ratio you normally want to see your team around one-to-one because what it tells you is you're missing either under or over the baseball an equal number of times, which means you're basically staying around the middle. We are hitting significantly more ground balls than we are fly balls, and we're hitting significantly more ground balls for outs than any other team in the league. So what does that tell you? All right, we're getting the bat on it, but now we got to start to square it up. Let's drill down a little bit further into that. And I guess it's one of those things we probably should have looked at. I wonder how many of those ground balls to the right side of the infield are coming from left-handed hitters versus right-handed hitters. 
because to me – right-handed pitchers? No, I'm talking about right-handed oh, hitters. Oh, as opposed to. As opposed to. Are, are we pulling off balls? Because at the end of the day, Charlie, I think a couple of these guys are better hitters when they're working up the middle and the other way. Josh Hatcher. Yes. I think Josh Hatcher is a better hitter when he's at the plate in the mindset of going middle away. And how many times do you see Hatcher swing and miss and his follow-through is pulling him towards first base? I mean, you look at it and you say, it looks like he's trying to hit one out to right. And then you go back and you look at his good at-bats, how many of them are doing exactly what you said, thinking up the middle other way. Keeps him in on the baseball, right? It, yeah, it, it does. It goes back to what you're talking about. You're not pulling off of it. And, you know, Rafael Palmero kind of drove that point home to us a couple of weeks ago. Okay, let's look at the pitching from last weekend. Christian McLeod, he attacked the zone. He worked with fastball. He worked with changeup. LSU is a team, they do not hit a whole lot of left-handed hitters. Arkansas is a team that they've got a few more, and so it'll be interesting to see you know what that changeup does in tonight's game for Christian McLeod. Then Will Bednar on Saturday. Will was just as good as you thought he could be. Man, he, he started out that fastball slider. It, it's just so lights out. And so the top half of your rotation you feel so good about. And let's address the elephant in the room right now, and that's a game three starter. We kind of wondered last week, you know, with Bednar right on the cusp of coming back to be in the lineup, whose spot would he take? He took Fristo's spot, and he kind of could go both ways about whether he should take Fristo's or Sarantola's. This week, Fristo back in the rotation on Sunday, Sarantola out of the rotation. Here's the thing about it, though, Charlie. Before the season is over, whether it be in middle relief, whether it be in the SEC tournament, whether it be in a regional, whether it be possibly in the College World Series, we're going to need Eric Sarantola. We're going to have to have Eric Sarantola. You, you, he's just too good of an arm to not be able to use, and we just have to figure out a way to get him some confidence. Are you? I mean, because isn't that one of the points about this pitching staff, though, is how deep it is? Well, that is true. I mean, this is probably the year that you could probably push somebody down. But it's still 97. It still lights out ability. And I'm not talking about getting five innings, but he, he may be a guy that you need to get a strikeout that you bring in out of the bullpen. I'm trying to – this is glass half full. Well, and I guess what I would say is this, and my, my comment wasn't driven to the idea of let's throw him aside. My comment is this. I think what you have to do right now with Eric Sarantola is – basically what you've seen, which is take him out of your weekend rotation, send him into the midweek, let him get some innings in ball games that just candidly aren't going to be as high leverage. Maybe don't start him. Pitch him out of the bullpen. Bring him into the third when you're up four to nothing. And then there's the only pressure to him, I think, is internal. I don't think in terms of the team, I don't think we desperately need him. I think we have enough arms. I would like to have him. It's almost the same mindset as we had in 2012 with Chris Stratton. You remember Chris Stratton just couldn't harness it. You know, those first two years, he had a great outing down in Baton Rouge, I think in 2010, okay? That was his freshman year. But in 2012, we started Ben Bracewell in games and then back into Stratton, essentially with that purpose of just taking away the pressures of being the starting pitcher. And it worked wonders for him for three or four games where he came out of the bullpen and then all of a sudden he's thrust back in the starting role because Bracewell went down and then he goes to Baton Rouge in 12 and strikes out all those guys in his first start. 
to me, that may be a, a sense of what you could see with Sarantola, like you just said, Charlie, bringing him in in the fourth or fifth inning on a midweek game against Memphis or whoever, Jackson, Jacksonville State, and let him work his way back into possibly a starting role. Yeah, and I don't know Eric Sarantola well enough to know what it is that makes him tick, what motivates him. Some kids need to be challenged, and they feel like they have to work their way back in. I think, though, just watching him, it goes back to the old uh, Bull Durham line, don't think it'll only hurt the ball club. You know, he's got a little bit. You can see him just kind of almost fighting with himself out there. You know, he throws a bad pitch, and the body language is bad. I think he needs to be put into some low-leverage situations and let him fight his way back. And that's, I think you make a great point. It can be done. It can absolutely be done because we've seen it done. I mean, how many times have we seen guys who, for whatever reason, it just clicked? Now, what you hope is it clicks while he's here. It's going to click for him one day. The stuff, I mean, he's got big league stuff. But what you hope is it's not the Brandon Woodruff situation where it clicks when he's 25. Charlie, looking at it from a macro standpoint, this is a big two weeks. You've got Arkansas, three-game series here this weekend, and then you have Kentucky next weekend. You've gone on the road and you won two out of three. Now you've got, you got a whole serve at home. This is the Baseball America number one versus number two this weekend. It kind of feels like the good old days this weekend. This is a big series. It's huge, and what's interesting, you go back, the home team has really had the success in this series for a number of years. If you look back, over the last 61 games that have been played, I think Mississippi State's won 31. Arkansas's won 30. These are two teams in the past, what, eight seasons, have both been to regionals each year. They've been to the World Series four times. We've been three. We're a lot alike if you look at these two programs in terms of the success that we've had. We'll take a deeper dive in the final segment when we talk about Mississippi State and Arkansas. We've got a great show for you this week. And once again, we're brought to you by Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. They have the best service in the insurance industry. They're hometown people. They're the people that you go to church with, the people you pick up your kids and carpool with, the people that you know. So go with the home team at Farm Bureau. Great show this week. When we come back, we'll talk to the head coach of the New York Giants, Joe Judge. Mississippi, the New York football Giants. The New York football Giants. Yeah, that's kind of Jason Garrett always said it. I just, I just kind of <laughs> like that. New York football Giants. Well, he's offense coordinator now. There yeah, now. So now it's official. Absolutely. All right. So Joe Judge coming up. Then we'll talk to Paul Mahalam, who had a great career at Mississippi State, and then a big nine, ten-year career in Major League Baseball, and then we'll get you ready for Mississippi State and Arkansas later in the show. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau, Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, well, this week we're going to go to the Northeast and talk to the head coach of the New York Giants. Joe Judge will join us in this conversation brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, producing the finest pork sausage in America. It's great stuff down on Highway 49 in Florence. Hey, by the way, my wife brought home some of the blueberry maple. I haven't tried it yet, but she is really excited about that. I thought I gave you a package of the no, blueberry maple. you gave me the maple. I didn't get the blueberry maple. 
Okay, I think I was supposed to give you the blueberry well, bagel. there's a freezer at your house full of sausage you were supposed to have given me. And the thing about the blueberry maple out in Texas, what they're doing is they're putting the blueberry maple on sticks, dipping it in pancake batter, and frying it like a breakfast corn dog. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> That'll be good for your runs right there, like your jogs. Okay, so <laughs> that's brought to you by – Country-pleasing sausage, country-pleasing that pineapple and pork. Charlie likes the blueberry maple, or is he about to like it? So Now, I'm still a jalapeno cheddar guy. Are you? Yeah. I like the good old original. The stuff. So this conversation brought to you by country-pleasing. So let's go to the phones where the head coach of the New York Giants joins us, former Mississippi State player. Joe Judge joins us. Joe, you know, we ask all these guys that we talk to each and every week the same question, especially the former players. How did you end up from Lansdale, Pennsylvania, to Startwell, Mississippi? You know what? It was uh, the best way I can sum up to everybody is Jack and Cheryl. And, um, you know, I was, you know, Coach Cheryl getting an opportunity to come down there and play some ball, an opportunity to be on the team, and, and I jumped on it. It was a deal where, you know, being from, you know, obviously a ways away from Mississippi, I wasn't very familiar with it. I wasn't very familiar overall with the school, but I came down for a visit and, uh, and really fell in love with it. And uh, it was a deal that, you know, I ended up staying down there playing GA and met my wife, had some kids down there, and, uh, you know, definitely a place to call home now. You know, I've said over the years that we all kind of pick up little experiences ever, everywhere, and they go with us and help make us who we are. What are the big experiences at Mississippi State that you kind of draw from today? You know, I think when anyone goes away to college, yeah, it gives you an opportunity to kind of step out on your own and really, you know, start making a lot of your own decisions, kind of shaping the way you're going to go. For me personally, being so removed from home, I had a great you know, upbringing. I had two very sports parents, but being so removed from home, uh, it forced me to really step out and you know meet a lot of different people, uh, get a lot of different places, experience a lot of different things that, that I hadn't experienced throughout my life. Everything from you know, you're in Starkville, so you have long weekends. Whether it was you know taking spring breaks down the Panhandle, whether it was Mardi Gras. Uh, whether it was Memphis and May going to Beale Street. There's a lot of things I just hadn't been exposed to that, you know, really ended up loving. But I think, you know, ultimately the experiences uh, for me really end up being more the people, to be honest with you, the relationships I form. And, you know, I really formed a, a good deal of, you know, very good friends that I keep in touch with, you know, mostly on a daily basis and uh, have been just very instrumental in they're making key decisions in my life. And a lot of people that have, you know, known me for a long time and, and really, I can trust always be honest with me. And, uh, you know, people that know my family and care about my kids, the same way as I did for them. So, to me, the experiences are probably more the people that I've been around. Now, I could go ahead and, and tell a story after story about, you know, whether it's different games of playing or, or coaching down there uh, or different things we, we did throughout the times. But really, at the end of the day, I, I could think about events. But really, one thing I must be saying, I always come back to the people for me. Talking with Joe Judge, the head coach of the New York Giants. You know, Joe, we think about the you know, when you ended your career here at State, Sylvester Croom had come in and he was an NFL guy and he kind of brought an NFL vibe. Who are your influences in coaching? I know you've been around, you've got a pretty good tree you've worked under, but who have been the, the major influences for you? Well, I can honestly say I've taken something from everybody I've ever played, you know, whether it's a position coach uh, or a head coach that I've played for or worked for. And I try to do everything in my own style and to be myself, but there's principles along the way that I've learned and things that really help shape my philosophy and where I think a team should be and, and how the right way to go about things are. Yeah, I think the first time I started thinking about the NFL Dallas was when I worked for Sylvester I mean, just him talking about 
the league in general from the professional standpoint of the business element of it and how good it was for families and how good it was for, you know, just being in the profession. That was the first time it really made me interested and I started looking into it a little bit more. Uh, Amos Jones was down there at the time and he ended up taking a job with the Steelers and he left Mississippi State. And that kind of kept me a little connected to, I guess, a different avenue of football outside of the SEC with the NFL. And it gave me just a little more insight into something that's a little bit different. So when the opportunity came up uh, after my time in Alabama, to me it was something that was interesting enough to go look into. Um, so that was kind of my exposure to the NFL. And then I got into it and I've enjoyed a good bit. Balls, balls. You know, I really enjoyed the relationships with the players more than anything. But in terms of the influences from the coaches, I've taken something from everyone. You know, I can think back to, you know, Coach Croom and how he commanded a room and how he, you know, treated everybody as a person. I can think about how he, you know, emphasized the importance of people on a daily basis and really forming those relationships of trust. You know, I can go to what the Coach Saban and the level of detail he had with everything and the absolute preparation, you know, that he really brought on a daily basis or as a practice or a game. I think about my time with Coach Belichick, you know, in Foxborough. And, you know, to me with him, it, it went back to the people again, but put on a different element than it was with Coach Kroon in terms of, you know, Coach Belichick was more about the people in terms of, you know, who they are as players and their strengths and weaknesses and how to use your pieces kind of a chess match to play your strengths and, and put somebody else at a disadvantage. And to be honest with you, I go back to, you know, Coach Cheryl and, you know, the outside-the-box thinking. You know, and that was something, you know, Kurt Sherrill was always looking for a different way, whether it was for motivation or it was for just a different way of using the team to create a scenario. And, you know, I really always loved that about Coach. And he was great to be in a meeting with. And he was great to get one-on-one. Um, he was ultra-competitive. And I think, you know, all those guys that I just mentioned, that's one thing is, you know, in their own ways. But they all had that ultra-competitiveness about them that you have to have it on a daily basis. And to be honest with you, if I go further back, you know, your real roots of coaching or who you are as a person are probably shaped early in life. And, you know, my high school coach, Jim Algero, Lango Catholic, and, and my dad, that's really, I'd say, my two first coaches, not the only people who coached me at a young age, but the two people who probably shaped me the most at a young age. And when I think about them, it all comes back to, you know, the fundamentals of how you do things, the work ethic, um, the techniques, the playing with a tough mindset, being a hard-nosed, deep-powered team. And that was kind of, the, you know, the message I kind of had at home growing up, you know, and that was, you know, the area we grew up in at the high school I went to and, and kind of what we identified ourselves as. We weren't the biggest school. We weren't the most talented, but we figured if we went out there and we played the hardest every week and we did things the right way, it gave us a chance. And uh, we just always kind of dressed our hat on being tougher than the other team and eventually that would pay off. So everyone I've ever been around, uh, I take something from. And, uh, you know, as you keep telling stories throughout the profession, and as I said, I'm riding in a car right now with two other coaches who are telling stories and passing things around. It's amazing how many things and different stops we have that you kind of tell the story and you realize I'm using that right now, you know, with my own team. One of the things that we keep reading about the New York Giants now that you've taken over is a change in culture. And there's been so much talk about how the culture of the Giants has changed that now players want to come there, that they see something happening with the Giants. Bart and I spend so much time around college teams and have a little bit of an idea about building culture among them. How do you go about, what is the challenge of building a culture when you're dealing with highly paid professional athletes? Yeah, I don't think the paycheck truly changes the way people are inside. I think that's the misconception of professional sports, that there's a business element of it. But at the end of the day, people are people. And you have to treat people and approach people as people. And 
you have to find out what motivates them on a competitive level and how to get there. So to me, in terms of talking about the culture, what kind of culture do you want? But to me, you know, we talk about having a winning culture. And ultimately, what is that really? And to me, a winning culture is a group of people uh, that are going to do everything that's best for the team and that all have the same end goal in mind. I talk to our players all the time about goals. Everyone has individual goals. There's nothing wrong with individual goals. But those individual goals have to be reflected in how you work on a daily basis. And ultimately, that should benefit the team. So there's nothing wrong with having individual goals, but you have to understand that it supports the team goals. And as a team, we have to hold each other accountable that you may be working towards an individual goal. However, you know, I've got to make sure you're doing that every day as hard as you can. And you've got to hold me accountable with what I'm trying to achieve and together we'll have collective success. You know, to me, it's important that the people in your building truly care about the people next to them. And that doesn't happen, you know, by accident. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to be very intentional about how you, you know, work the players together and the challenges you put them through. And if you make it a competitive environment, that's when people become closer. It doesn't cause division. You know, and as long as you're open and transparent about what you're doing and why you're doing it, then you can be as demanding as you want to be with the players. And in turn, when they understand what the end goal is and what the purpose of what they're doing is, they'll work hard to achieve that. So to me, it's just about, you know, talk about the culture and how do we get to being a winning team. It, it all traces back to the people, uh, just being honest and direct and open with them, being very transparent, but then being very demanding. and Ultimately, that you want inside that they understand they're doing it, you know, collectively. And even though they're working towards a team goal, they have any of their success as well. Talking with Joe Judge, head coach of the New York Giants. Joe, we talk all the time in, in baseball in, in the SEC about separation points. When you get to inning seven through nine in the SEC, who has the better pitching on the back end? Who who are the teams that can come from behind late in games? When you start talking about professional sports when you start talking about the nfl where you're dealing with professional athletes everybody has pros what are the big separation points between successful organizations and the ones that are mediocre well that's a long i'll give you a quick answer on that one right there to me it's you know i think it all goes back to detail you know when you look at the you know professional sports specifically the national football league you know it's built with parity you know the way the draft is set up you know, the worst teams get the higher draft picks, they get better players picking in. Uh, the people who finish with the best records will play the toughest schedules next year to try to balance out parity. So it's built that every year you can have these chances, and it's intentionally put together that way. Every team has the same budget they work with. Every team has talented coaches, talented players, and, you know, almost unlimited resources to support their team. So to me, it's about the details of what you're doing. You know, how you're going about your day. It's not enough to just go ahead and say you're playing fantasy football. We've all got talented players, and hey, you go out there and roll the ball out and still play. To me, it's still about the details and how you care on a daily basis, how you teach your team, how you make them situationally aware, how you instruct them on the field, make sure they're fundamentally sound. And then, you know, putting them in situations that are going to simulate and create as much competition that they're going to feel in the game that they've experienced that, you know, game before they get out there. There's a lot of parity in the league, so to me, it's, there's always small factors of separation. And when you really watch the majority of games in the NFL, it's not about one point or one score or less. You know, when you get into playoff football, where all the teams are very good, you start really watching games, you can go ahead and narrow out and cut out two, three, four plays 
that are truly the things that decided the victory in the game. And the understanding that everything is important, everything we do is important. You know, how our guys work out of there, important how they recover after there, important how they stretch through practice, stay healthy, important how we condition their team, important how when we execute tackling drills, you know, so we can be safe and efficient when we're doing technique wise. And it's important how they sleep at night to have, you know, that kind of rest. It's important how we quiz the players to make sure they're catching up on the material. And it's important how we approach game day. So, to me, all those small details are really, when you see the truly great teams, that's really the deciding factor. Everybody has talent. Everyone has good coaches. Everybody has some kind of schema that can draw up. At the end of the day, to me, the really great teams are detail-oriented and they're very committed to the process of going day-to-day of what they have to do to have success. You know, I'm curious, you're a Mississippi State guy. Your wife played at Mississippi State. Bart and I, we're Mississippi State guys. And when we go home, our kids all want to wear Dak Prescott jerseys. Uh, that's uh, another guy in your league right there, in your conference. Uh, do you ever go home and your kids say, Dad, I want a Dak jersey? Yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll be honest with you. So when I was when I was in New England, there's a friend of mine who's close to Dak, and, and we actually traded jerseys at one point. A, a Brady jersey sign. They sent us a Dak uh, jersey sign coming back. And, you know, being a Mississippi State guy, I've got a lot of pride in how Dak plays. I think he's a guy that does it the right way. You know, he's a good person. He works hard. He's productive. Uh, he's a good team guy. I've got a lot of respect for Dak. He's very tough. He actually got hurt being up this year on our sideline. It was very tough to see, to be honest with you, because it's not a respect you have for him as a player. Um, so, look, I'd kind of say one thing I've learned being down there is. I always root for Mississippi, okay? It's kind of tough to stomach sometimes, but to be honest with you, when State wasn't playing, what didn't involve State, but I wanted to see Ole Miss do well, too. I know it's kind of tough to stomach, but to me, there was just a pride, and you know, even though I wasn't from there, I could sit at home, that I wanted to see Mississippi do well. And I pulled for Southern Miss the same way, too. I want to see those schools do well. Um, and then, obviously, when we play each other, you know, we're doing everything we can to beat each other. Um, but, you know, Dak plays for a rival for us now. Obviously, we're doing everything we can to beat them. However, I do like seeing Dak do well. I do. I think that all the players who really truly do it the right way in this league, I tend to pull for because you like to see guys who are good people who work hard, who are good teammates, who see have success. Talking to Joe Judge, and before we let you go, I know you got Jody Wright up there with you, Ryan Holler, and you've got some Mississippi, you got some Mississippi State guys up there. Is there ever a situation, and I know you're game planning for the next day, is there ever a situation where you kind of peek all together in the office and you're trying to figure out what the dogs are doing? You know, we got a lot of Starkville guys in the building. You know, we've got, I'm in the car with Ryan Holland right now. We got Jody right back in the office. You know, Freddie Kitchens is on our staff. Amos Jones is on our staff. Uh, we got a stretch of guys that are with us after those days. And, uh, but to be honest, we, we always circle on back and talk about, you know, different times at Starkville records things. But we do. We keep tabs on what's going on down there at Mr. State. We pull for them all the time. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, watching. The women's basketball team, my wife's soccer team, you know, religiously. Uh, I'm obviously always watching all the football I can with these guys, you know, men's basketball and baseball. You know, having the SEC network on TV now has been great. Too. We can just sit down in our living room. It's easier to get access to watch the games any time of year. So that's been great. But, yeah, we all keep up with Mississippi State as much as we can. I think that's definitely a place, even for the guys into the school there, we all agree it's very, very special. Every one of us, for me, it's different. Had a graduate to play there for my wife as well. That for us really is home. Joe, hey, we enjoyed it. Just want to let you know that we talked to one NFL coach last year, 
and he won the Super Bowl. We talked to Bruce Arians, but we picked <laughs> we picked you this year. We picked you this year, and so anyway, we're the good luck charm. Hey, good luck to you. Proud of you. Hey guys, I appreciate, it, man. I really do. Next time, Starkville. All right, make sure we get beat up. And that's Joe Judge, the head coach of the New York Giants. What's well, good stuff? Joe is phenomenal. That guy commands a room, man. Well, think about what he's been able to do since leaving Mississippi State. He went and worked under Nick Saban, two BCS championships, goes up and works with Belichick, three NFL Super Bowl championships. Man, that guy's he's seen some stuff to be as young as he <laughs> is and, and now to be head coach of the New York Giants. It's really cool, isn't it, to see a, a Mississippi State grad in that position and then having to look across the field twice a year and seeing a Mississippi State player as the opposing quarterback. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, that how that, you know, he brought it up just a minute ago about how he was standing on the sideline right in front of where Dak got hurt. Jason Garrett was there that day as well, offensive coordinator with the Giants right now, former head coach of the Cowboys. And, yeah, it's it's amazing. When you start looking at the Mississippi State guys in the league, you look at the head coach and, and Joe Judge and then Bruce Arians down at Tampa. I mean, there's a big Mississippi State flair in the NFL right well, now. talked about Amos Jones being on his staff. He, of course, was an assistant here under Sylvester Croom, coached with the Steelers. Yep, famous Amos. Hey, good stuff. When we come back, we'll talk to Paul Mahalam, former pitcher for Mississippi State 2001 to 2003, and then a 10-year big leaguer, a big-time left-handed pitcher, Paul Mahalam. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Great conversation with Joe Judge. And now let's talk to Paul Mahalam. Paul Mahalam, the pitcher with the Pittsburgh Pirates for many years. Of course, pitched at Mississippi State 2001 to 2003. And he pitched for the Dodgers, pitched for the Cubs, and had a great career in the big leagues. But first, this conversation brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish, Heartland over in the heart of the Mississippi Delta in Itabina. It's right there on Highway 82, just on the other side of Greenwood in Itabina. And they have great catfish. They put it in some great restaurants in the south, and one of those restaurants is Ron's Catfish House in Jonesboro, Arkansas. They've got the big lunch buffet they have every day. But uh, check them out at 3213 Dan Avenue in Jonesboro, if you're ever in that area, if you're in Memphis, it's worth a drive from Memphis up to Jonesboro to eat at Ron's Catfish House. And so that catfish buffet is as good as it gets. And this conversation with Paul Mahalan brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. And let's go back to the phones where former Mississippi State pitcher and major league pitcher Paul Mahalan joins us. Paul, appreciate you hanging out with us a little bit. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Paul, you were the topic of discussion last year a couple of times with us on our show. The first time was with Jim Case, of course, who was your pitching coach and recruited you. The other time was with Lane Burroughs, and he was talking about – Lane was talking about how that he really learned how to recruit players based upon the way that Jim Case recruited Paul Mahalam. 
And I look back at how you got here, and I normally ask the question about how you ended up coming to Mississippi State and the journey that you took from high school to get here. But, man, you had a really interesting story about how you ended up at Mississippi State. Looking back then, what are your thoughts of, you know, coming close to signing a major league contract and then all of a sudden showing up? And I just remember seeing Jim Case that day and how excited he was that you decided to come to Starville. It was uh, obviously it was it's the best decision for me to you know obviously end up three years at Mississippi State and you know Coach Case and and Raph and Coach Mack and all of them were great during the whole process you know the night before I kind of crushed them because I had to call them and tell them I was going to sign and then that next morning I had got to call them and tell them I was going to stay in school and head to class and obviously uh, they were excited and Raph was trying to find me an earlier class than what I actually had and I was like no like we're good just. You know, let me let me get going and and not cause any distractions. Let me you know just be a normal student and get ready to to go to practice and get around teammates and get to know them a little bit better. Talking to Paul Mahalan, Paul, did you actually go to class before you told him, or did you tell him before you went to class? No, no, I told him before I went to class. That's why they were trying to <laughs> they were trying to switch my schedule so I could get in class a little earlier just to make sure because once you walk in that room at it, at that point, that was back in the day whenever. There really wasn't a deadline, so once you walked in the class, you were you were a college athlete. You know, we talk so much, and you see today in the SEC, so many pitchers that come in and kind of get their feet wet in the midweek as freshmen, and then maybe make the rotation. But you know, you went straight to the top of the rotation basically as soon as you got here. You threw over a hundred innings as a freshman. How was that walking into a, an established program and taking the ball on Friday nights and headed out to the hill? Yeah, it was awesome. Obviously, there's plenty of tradition at Mississippi State, and you know, it was just something that you know I grew up with, enjoyed watching. I uh, was proud to to be able to go out there every week and compete. And you know, my main goal whenever I got on campus was to make sure that I was in the weekend rotation and just make sure that I was a reliable source for Coach Mack and then obviously Coach Bolt my last two years. But I had goals, and I was fortunate enough that they trusted me early on. Now. It wasn't always the smoothest process, but it worked out well for both parties in, in the end. And whenever you're young and come out of high school and think you're a little bit better than you are, there can be some SEC weekends that put you back at the drawing board and make you work a little harder. Talking with Paul Mahalam. Paul, was it tough? You come in as a freshman and pitch a lot, and then all of a sudden, Pat McMahon leaves to go to Florida. Jim Case goes to Jacksonville State, and all of a sudden, Coach Polk's coming back. Darren Schoenrock's coming in as a pitching coach. How difficult was it to kind of change philosophies going into your sophomore year? It was different. I wouldn't say it was difficult. You know, with whenever Coach Case obviously got a head coaching job at Jacksonville State so obviously you're you're happy for him because that's obviously something that you know he he worked hard for and he deserved and obviously done really well at it and you know coach Mack it was just a different situation and I understood it but obviously it was disappointing that the guy that recruited you had had you know taken another job and it was really different because I went out to Team USA and he was the head coach you know after all that had happened but me and Mack have had a great relationship ever since it wasn't anything and then obviously I look forward to playing for Coach Polk and Coach Rock just seeing different perspectives and Coach Rock helped me tremendous just like Coach Case did. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I always enjoyed throughout college, even high school and, and obviously making it my way through my career was getting a different perspective from a bunch of different pitching coaches and trying to see what worked for me and what didn't and can always learn a little something and try new things. So it was different, but it, I wouldn't say it was difficult. It was just something you you moved on and, and got ready because, you know, I came to 
Mississippi State to play for for the school, and uh, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, we're obviously getting ready to play Arkansas this weekend, and Bart and I were looking back through the record books and have had a lot of discussions about that 2003 game against Arkansas. I think it was the second 10-inning performance in a row for you. Throw 140 pitches, get the win in a 4-3 ball game. I'm curious, what do you remember from that 2003 performance at Arkansas? Obviously, it was a it was a long game. It was hard fault. And the week before, I think it was against Vanderbilt, I'd thrown 10 innings, but only 100 pitches. So it really wasn't – I tried to keep going after 10 innings against Vanderbilt, and Coach Bolt wouldn't allow it. You know, so that day, I just remember telling both Rock and Coach Bolt, you know, they kept wanting to pull me. Obviously, I had – you know, in their minds, they're making sure that they were taking care of me for my future. But I just kind of told them, like, now, nah, like, this is my game, and I'm going to stay out there until we win. And – Fortunate enough, we won it in 10, and I guess by being a, a hard-headed competitor, I didn't cost the team. So, like I said, just a nice, long, hard SEC start. Paul, sometimes I sit around with – I was watching a football game with a coach, and the entire game he was breaking down everything that was happening just out of instinct. I'm curious as a former big leaguer, as a guy that played at the highest levels in college and the pros, do you get a chance to watch Mississippi State baseball – like a fan, or do you find yourself just wanting to break it down and think about pitch selections? How is it to watch a game with Paul Mahalam? I do get to watch some games. I try to just to enjoy watching. I know we got a bunch of great pitchers uh, on the team right now, so I try to just enjoy watching them and not, not getting that mindset of how to set up hitters and, and all that. There are times where you look and you're just kind of like, the guy is super late on fastballs and all of a sudden throw a breaking ball and he gets a hit and you're just wondering you know, what the mindset was, and you know, rather than just come after them and beat them with your best stuff. But like I said, I try to just relax and watch the game and not, you know, I, I had to grind for, for a long time. And I, obviously I didn't, in my career, I wasn't the hardest thrower like those are, like the guys are now. And so it was more of a, a mentality. So I try not to get back into the grind, but it is fun to, to watch and just remember back on how to set up hitters and just get easy outs and just get ground balls on the first or second pitch and uh, make sure you're not out there with your shortstop and second baseman tossing the glove in there because you're walking every hitter. You know, it's interesting. You talk about pitching you know, with velocity and maybe not having as much velocity as some of the guys do today. Do you find yourself thinking or observing that players today rely too much on velocity and not learning how to pitch? Uh, I definitely think that's part of it. Obviously, I wish I would have could throw 95, 97, like you know, a majority of it seems like guys do now. You know, it's a big thing on, you know, obviously hitters are launch angles and all this other stuff and pitchers are throwing up in the zone more. And I do think that when you look at just major league starters now that there's so many quick hooks and guys are a six inning starts a great thing now. I guess I was just always in the mindset that I'm going to go as long and as hard as I can until they come take the ball. And, you know, luckily I was able to average over six innings for my career in the big leagues and you know so I think it's just different mindsets I wish that it would get back to some you know pitch to contact and keep guys more into the game and you know you figure with all these shifts and all this extra information and analytics that a ground ball pitcher would be better just because there's more I mean we should be able to place guys and if you make a pitch then all of a sudden you know it's an easy out rather than throwing 110 pitches in four innings. Paul appreciate you joining us man look forward to seeing you the next time you're on campus. All right. Thank you, guys. And that's Paul Mahalam. Paul Mahalam pitching at State 2001 to 2003. Charlie, I'll tell you this. I don't know of a guy that I would rather have on the mound 
with a runner at third and less than two outs in Paul Mahalam. He had that bulldog mentality when he pitched, even in the big leagues, a good hard slider, as you heard him say just a moment ago. He wasn't that hard thrower with a fastball, but the guy just knew how to pitch. Well, and that's what's been really interesting to me. We talked to Kendall Graveman last week, Paul Mahalm today, and you see Graveman, who now throws very hard but didn't while he was here. Mahalam talking about how compared to guys now he didn't have the velocity. But those guys really learned the art of setting up hitters, working counts, getting ground balls early in counts so you don't have to throw 140 pitches. And I, I think it's always really interesting to talk to guys who know how to pitch. And that conversation brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, U.S. farm-raised catfish. Check them out at your local grocer. Ask for them at your local grocer. If your local grocer doesn't have it, go to another local grocer because Heartland Catfish is just that much better than anything else. And once again, if you're in the Jonesboro, Arkansas area, Ron's Catfish, if you're going up to St. Louis, make a little detour over on 55, go over to Jonesboro. Ron's Catfish. It's good stuff. They do it right at Ron's in Jonesboro, Arkansas. When Charlie and I come back, we'll have a preview of this weekend's matchup between number one Arkansas and number two Mississippi State, according to Baseball America. Back with more. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Yeah, welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. It's been a good show so far, Charlie. Man, I really enjoy talking to Joe Judge. I remember, Joe, we didn't bring up a couple things. One is he got tossed out of that Alabama game, Supreme's first year back. Remember and, that? Yeah, and Bill Curry giving him the hard time on the broadcast. Remember that? <laughs> Absolutely. Who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and now this guy's the head coach of the New York Giants. And then, uh, well, he's got Ryan Hollering up there, who is his chief of staff, Jody Wright, I think some player personnel. So he's got a Mississippi State flair up there with the Giants. And, of course, Amber Meese, his, his wife, Amber Meese Judge, was a great soccer player here on campus at Mississippi State. And then Paul Mahalam. Paul is still back a lot. Paul comes back to a lot of Mississippi State sporting events. He comes to just about every football game as well and lives in Hattiesburg. And it's always great to see and hear from Paul as – as well, and so Charlie, we get ready for this weekend. State in Arkansas later tonight, six thirty. Christian McLeod for Mississippi State. Arkansas going to counter with a left-hander, Patrick Wicklander, and Wicklander has not been a mainstay guy so far in the Arkansas rotation. He is not this year. If you go back to the last full season we played, twenty nineteen, he had a number of starts, kind of a Saturday Sunday guy as a freshman for Arkansas. And he, it's interesting because if you look at those starts, he was not a six, seven, eight inning guy. He was more of a three, four inning guy. And I think that's what Arkansas is going to be looking for him to do today. And you say, why are you making the change? Well, one of the reasons is because Pollitt just was not good at Alabama last weekend, the guy that had been their Friday starter. You weren't good out of the bullpen. You bring in Wicklander. He goes five and a third, doesn't allow a run. But here's the other thing. He's a lefty. And what do we know about Mississippi State's lineup? There's going to be a lot of lefties. I do not think at all that this is a situation where Arkansas is trying to get an eight-inning start out of Wicklander. I think you're going to see Pollitt. You're going to see other guys out of the bullpen. Okay, Charlie, so looking ahead to this weekend, Arkansas is going to throw two left-handed pitchers with Wicklander tonight, then Lockhart in the game on Sunday – 
And so you kind of wonder what that does to us. What's it going to do in left field for us? Because Skinner has not had a situation where he's started in a game where you've had a starting left-handed pitcher. LSU rolled out a bunch of right-handers last week. And then in the midweek against UNA, they moved Skinner up to the leadoff spot from that eight spot in the order. So you kind of wonder what State's kind of thinking right here when Arkansas is going to go left-handed heavy with their rotation. i tell you what I'd be thinking, and that is I'm putting my best guy out there, and right now that's Braylon Skinner. And I don't care whether the guy on the mound is right-handed, left-handed, or ambidextrous. Look, what does he do for you? He covers a lot of ground in the field. But I, I really like the idea of playing him at the top of the order, and there's a few reasons for that. One, he's fast. But two, he just brings some energy. He's got some excitement to him. You see the, the dugout react to him. And then third, nobody else is doing it very well right now. And you, we talk about DeBrule. Will he play second base? I don't know. You know. They played Tanner Leggett there in the midweek. Was that just a day off for DeBrule to kind of clear his head? I think it probably was. But if you're going to clear his head, do you do that very successfully, putting him right back at the top of the order? I think you have to play Skinner and you got to lead him off. So going back to your point about DeBrule, you know playing North Alabama on Wednesday night, and the pandy has not been good to North Alabama at all. Is that also a situation of trying to allow Tanner Leggett to play his way into the lineup against left-handed pitching? Could very well be. And, you know, one thing we've seen from Chris Lamontis, we've talked about this a lot, there is no such thing as a final lineup with him. If he has done one thing since he's been here, he's shown this interesting mix between patience but willingness to make a change. And we've already we talked so many times about moving Foscue. We've talked about dropping Westberg in the order a few years ago when he was struggling. Even this year, moving Cameron James away from shortstop. He didn't panic and do it after one game. But if you go back and you look, we just have not been getting production at the very top of the order the way we need it. And I think I'm in a spot right now where you got to try something. Arkansas's lineup has hit 31 home runs. And when you look at Arkansas, you know, so much has been made about the pitching staff. And I would probably argue the point, Charlie, that when you look at all the pitching staffs in the country, they're probably not too deeper. Now, you've got some high-end talent at Vanderbilt. But I would argue there's not two deeper staffs in the country than Mississippi State and Arkansas. So then all of a sudden you flip the page and you look at the offensive side. Casey Opitz batting 364 right now. He's a guy that can, you know, he has seven of his 20 hits have been extra bases, five doubles, only one home run. Brady Slavens kind of can hurt you in the middle of that order. Six home runs. Caden Wallace has five home runs. This is an Arkansas team that can can run it up offensively as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people around the country that do the rankings have them at the top or close to the top is because they, they're offensively a pretty good offensive team. Are they great? Not great. They're batting two seventy nine, but this is an Arkansas team that can do some damage. If we were just looking at the numbers, you would say that Arkansas is a little better offensively than we are, and they hit for considerably more power than we do, but we're better pitching it. One thing Arkansas does do well, even though they're not quite as good, you know, their opposing batting average isn't as low, things of that nature, they turn a lot of double plays. They roll a lot of ground balls with their pitching staff, and you've got a ground ball hitting team in Mississippi State. Ultimately, you're going to have to push some runs across because the one thing for me, if you look at Arkansas, this is a team that is equipped to beat you with a bloop and a blast. Get a guy on base, hit one out to left, 
and all of a sudden that's how I see them putting up runs. You don't always have to piece together big innings. You get one or two big fly balls. What's the wind supposed to do? We looked at the wind. It's calm right now. But you kind of wonder about how the ballpark is going to play this weekend. It played a big part in how last weekend played. And, of course, you know the new Duty Noble field, and we're still young into this new ballpark. It is a launching pad at times. And so you, you wonder how that's going to play into, into factor this weekend about how big is the ballpark going to play. So you look at tonight, the wind is only going to be about a couple of miles an hour, two-mile-an-hour wind, not, not yeah. going to be a big factor. Here's what's interesting, though. Tomorrow, the wind at 2 o'clock is going to be to the north at 11 miles an hour. To the north or from the north? To the north. Oh, that's out the left. At 11 miles an hour. Now, here's the other thing, though, weather. We've obviously had a lot of talk about weather in the region. Tomorrow afternoon, if you look at it right now, we're scheduled uh, for a decent chance of thunderstorms in scattered thundershowers in the afternoon. So you wonder, how does that impact things? And then you've got a chance of rain on Sunday, primarily in the morning right now. Uh, But, by the way, Sunday, where's the wind going to be? It's going to reverse. It's going to be to the south. At 11 miles an hour. So blowing in. From, so you got one day blowing out, one day blowing in from left field. Sunday's game is an SEC network broadcast. And so you kind of wonder how that may play into the factor of moving games around as well. You and I have the first two games. Should be a lot of fun, Charlie. I'm looking forward to it. I'm kind of goosed Are you going to be talking about beer league softball uniforms this weekend? I am going to bring those out. Hey, I mean <laughs> – I'm going to bring out the fact that Arkansas has not put up any notes. I'm going to bring up the fact that we try to reach out to Dave Van Horn and he just ghosted us. We're going all in this weekend, all for the dogs. I better call up Matt Wyatt and see what he's doing. (laughs) Matt, I've got a bit of a cold, buddy. Appreciate you listening this week. Thanks to our great sponsors, Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. Country pleasing sausage. There's no better sausage in the world. And then uh, Heartland Catfish, Heartland producing the finest U.S. farm-raised catfish in America. So thanks again for listening. It's been a great show. We look forward to a great weekend, Mississippi State and Arkansas. Charlie and I will be back Sunday morning for Sunday Coffee to talk about the first two games of the series and get you ready for game three. So thanks again. Once again, subscribe to the podcast. We're getting a lot of subscriptions right now. It's amazing how this thing is really taking off on the podcast side. And once again, thanks to our great friends at WFCA 107.9 and French Camp for carrying the show each and every week on out of left field during the midweek. So appreciate you guys hanging out with us. Subscribe. Leave us a comment. Thanks again for listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.